You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Scripture reading this evening is from Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray this evening, Christ Church. Our Father, our Daddy, who is in heaven, but who is also here with us, even in our homes, even over Zoom, indwelling us, your people, for our good and for your glory. Holy is your name, set apart, unlike any other is your name. Lord, make it that way. We pray in our hearts, in our minds, in our homes, at our workplaces, in our families, and friendships, and with our neighbors, and even among the nations, Father. Make your name known and make your uniqueness and grace known, we pray, even as we dig into your word this afternoon. Thank you for forgiving us and reconciling us and adopting us. Please move in us to forgive and reconcile with others. Lord, we pray you'd provide food for our bellies on the daily. And we thank you for that. But more than that, we pray you'd provide spiritual food now and daily through your word. And Lord, lead us away to tem- away from temptation and, and deliver us from our own evil hearts and the evil that attacks us. We pray your kingdom would come. We pray your will would be done now in our hearts, here on earth as it is in heaven. Line up our hopes, we pray, our dreams, our understanding of ourselves and of you with your word now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey there, Christ Church. It is good to be with you, even over Zoom. It's good to dig into God's word with you. It's good to refresh our hope. Um, during this Advent season, um, when I uh, when I say the word "father," I, I can imagine a number of possible responses from you all uh, out there. A number of emotions arising in you um, tonight. We're going to be talking about adoption, and adoption has been on our minds as a family lately. Um, I know it's on the minds of many in our congregation as well. Some very exciting movements um, forward in in some families recently on the adoption front. Um, And then questions even in in other families and questions in our family. Are we done adding to our family? Do we we have more room in our hearts, in our house, in our cars? Um, and, And just praying that the Lord would help us through that, would help you all through those decisions and to help us more practically through the decision we've been diving into this quintessential 
masterpiece of adoption storytelling um, from uh, the galaxy far, far away. Of course, I'm speaking of the Mandalorian. <laughs> maybe, maybe your uh, dad was like the Mandalorian, fierce, protector, cold, metal armor of a shell around this frustratingly uh, lack of, of, of emotional expression, hiding, though, a surprisingly sensitive soft, soft spot for uh, cradling and maybe even a cuddle uh, now and then. If you don't know what the Mandalorian is, don't worry. You're not actually missing much. Ooh. Might have been a cardinal Star Wars sin right there. But on a more serious note, maybe your dad is a loving, a warm, committed, and kind father. Maybe he's still around. You'd love to see him this Christmas uh, for the first time in months, maybe. Or maybe even the first time in a year. Or maybe you'd like to see him again tomorrow because you see him every day of every week. Maybe you're torn because you're wanting to be careful with COVID, but you're also just dying to squeeze his neck. Maybe the idea of father brings up warm memories, but memories that, memories that were cut off by a funeral too early. Perhaps you've lost the presence of your father, your earthly father, perhaps just for this life or perhaps, perhaps forever. Your heart longs for that relationship, that fatherly friendship to go on, but it doesn't. Or maybe the, the word father brings a cold recoil to your soul. Maybe your dad was um, distant, there with you, but not really there for you. Uh, a fan, but maybe not a friend. A housemate, but not all that helpful. Or worse, maybe he was downright uh, emotionally or physically abusive. Or maybe he chose what looked like greener grass than you or your siblings, or your mom, or maybe you never even met your dad. Whatever the feelings that the word father or dad bring up in your heart, God, through his word, means to transform what we believe, how we feel, and how we live in light of the reality of what that word father should mean and what it does mean. When we look at our identity, we find our hope in being adopted by our forever father, God himself. So today in this message, part two of our Advent series on hope, I want to lean into this idea of adoption and explore five elements of adoption that give us the kind of hope that endures, the kind of hope that we have to have in order to cling to it. So whether your uh, positive understanding of Father gives you a, a, a previewed glimpse of God's reality or whether your upside down or truncated understanding of the word Father, the concept of Father or Dad needs to be totally undone, I pray that this serves you in your walk with Jesus and your walk through life. And heck, maybe even in your relationship with your earthly dad. The five elements of adoption we're going to touch on briefly, and I do mean briefly, are the pinnacle of adoption the promise of adoption, uh, the parallels of adoption, the privileges of adoption, and the power of adoption. So first, the pr promise of adoption. 
I'm going to jump around a little bit on the text uh, this evening. And first, I'm actually going to scroll up a little bit or, or, or turn back a, a page or a paragraph or so in Galatians 3, just before the text that Craig read for us in chapter 4. Chapter 3 wraps up this way, flowing straight into this concept of adoption, speaking to the Galatian Christians. Paul says in 3.26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And then verse 29, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to promise. So by promise of adoption, I don't necessarily mean to focus on the promise of being adopted future tense, though in some senses, the adoption we have as Christians is a now and a not yet reality. It's, it's, it's true. We have a fuller adoption to come one day. But what I mean here is the promise the promise that we're actually adopted into, the promise that already existed, that we are adopted into and experiencing even now. We see uh, right off the bat in the text that Craig actually did read for us that our hope of adoption is found most clearly in the inheritance of a promise that we have moved categorically, legally, and relationally from slaves to son, from enemies to heir. And what are those who adopted by God heirs of who are, what are we heirs of? Well, we're heirs of a promise, a promise that was here long before we were here, a promise made to undeserving Adam and Eve, a promise placed out of the blue on undeserving Abraham, the father of the old covenant people of God, Israel. So have you ever wondered why, why God decided to restart his plan of redemption with Abraham? Way back in Genesis 12, after the Tower of Babel debacle, humans flowing or following in, in, in Adam and Eve's footsteps to, to replace God's rule with self-rule, God's wisdom with worldly wisdom, and God's call to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and spread out with man's idea to, no, no, stick together, build a city to heaven. Um, well, we all know how that worked out. God judged, God scattered, then out of the blue, God called to himself a people. But Abraham was a pagan himself. He wasn't looking for God. Just like all of us, he was sinful from birth and, and living for himself and assigning errant value to and thus finding false gods in everything he experienced, just like we do. And like us, he was ultimately without hope unless God intervened. God, he was committed from before Abraham's day to beyond Abraham's day, he was committed to bringing a savior who would reestablish God's closeness to the crown of his creation, human beings, you and me. So sin had broken, God would fix and fix it. He did. Paul tells the Galatians that they are now heirs. The law, the law was set up for the old covenant people of God as a guide or, or a guardian to humanity on their way to redemption, on our way to realizing our own voluntary slavery to sin. The law was never meant to save us from sin. No, it was meant to point out our slavery to sin. And like the Galatians, we have been called out of slavery to sin, out of bondage to doing what we think is best and what we think is right and what we think is good to realizing now that, that we've always fallen short but that the cost to free us from that bondage of falling short has been paid by another. 
So whereas you and I from birth were locked into an understanding that God's way is the worst way and my way is the best way. And whereas we stubbornly keep ignoring the fact that our way just doesn't lead to joy or freedom or or love or peace, let alone hope when everything falls apart. He, God, made a way for all of that to be undone and reversed by adopting us into his family. We have inherited and are now inheriting and will forever inherit the eternal promise of God to redeem a people for himself. The undoing of the fall as promised to Adam and Eve, the gathering of all nations to himself as promised to Abraham, the law keeping priest he promised he'd be for Moses and the forever and benevolent king that he promised he'd be to David. All of these promises are now yes and amen for us in Jesus because he came. So where the law could only point out our peril, grace has drawn us into the promise and it's made us heirs of that promise, stewards of it, to live it out and to share it with all who might listen and applying it in every troubling situation. One of you out there, Christ Church members, who's going through a very difficult season right now, one with many unknowns and seemingly only impossible options moving forward, uh, reminded my wife, Joanna, and I this week, you got, you did, that we have to be moving um, forward in life and in trust because of the promise of adoption from saying in our hearts, I will be okay if, to saying I will be okay even if. This is the hope of adoption. It is difficult to overestimate the importance of adoption our adoption in Christ, practically and theologically. It brings us to our second point, the pinnacle of adoption. Verse four and five, I'll come back to one, two, and three, but four and five says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman under, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So of all the of all the majestic and mysterious and even magical spiritual elements that craft an order of salvation, which theologians call what I'm about to lay out for you. Uh, adoption stands alone at the pinnacle of God's redemptive act on individual souls. And it should stand alone in our understanding of who we are too. All the things God makes us in Christ are building up towards something and all that he expects from us in Christ are flowing from something. And that something is adoption as Christians. The Bible is very clear that because of our fallenness and our deadness, we first by grace must be elected, chosen before the foundations of the earth were ever laid out and not according, not chosen according to anything previously known about us. Instead, chosen despite knowing everything previously about who we would be, chosen by God for salvation. And I know theologically this brings up and raises more questions than, than answers But let's save that for another day. Suffice it to say that if a micro droplet of pride accidentally infiltrates our hearts when we think of being chosen, his, his love being placed on us before we ever thought or did or said anything. If, if, if a micro droplet of pride infiltrates our hearts, then that's a sign that we don't actually understand the doctrine. So 
let's grab coffee or Zoom chat or ha- uh, get together somehow to, to hammer that one out further. But for now, continuing on in this order of salvation, after being elected from infinity, eternity past, next comes our calling. By grace, we have been called. When, when someone shares the gospel with us, we are called externally to respond to God. And if it is God's will, we are called internally away from self and away from death. And all of this, again, is by grace called by grace. We're, we're regenerated. We're given new life by grace, brought back from the dead. Again, out of no act of our own, rather the Holy Spirit blowing his living wind, his living breath on our dead souls. And after we are regenerated, given new life, reborn, as it were, by grace, we are converted. Just as the wind of of the life-giving spirit blows, the first inhale of conversion is repentance. The first exhale is that of trusting faith in Jesus. And then by grace, we are justified. We're made both guilt-free in forgiveness and then made as righteous as Jesus himself. Actually righteous in Jesus, in God's eyes. By this great exchange we call the gospel. Forgiveness we didn't deserve and righteousness we did not earn. So stick with me here. Though we didn't deserve it, God chose to place his love on us. Though we didn't deserve it, God called us out of sin and death, beckoning us to himself. And though we didn't deserve it, God's spirit gave us new life, as well as the gift of repentance and faith. And though we didn't deserve it, really deserve the opposite. God calls us not guilty, paving the way for our full acceptance into his kingdom. After all these wonderful, but not quite complete acts of saving grace. Grace, Finally, we are adopted. You see, all of these miracles performed on us, for us, by God, are flowing toward this restored relationship with God in adoption. The judge who has just declared us not guilty, and, and, and he, he doesn't just, God as our judge does not just declare us not guilty and then shoo us out of the courtroom for his next case. He takes the time to come down and sit with us and hug us into his family. We're not just saved from being sinners. We're saved to being sons and daughters, literally and eternally in a family together under his love and grace. We are as welcome in God's presence as anyone ever was, as welcome as Jesus himself always was. We're as loved by God as anyone ever was, as loved as Jesus has always been loved. And we can grow in that familial love day by day. Adoption is the pinnacle of the order of salvation. Everything in earthly salvation flows toward the pinnacle. Adoption, everything in sanctification and perseverance and eventually glorification flows from this pinnacle of adoption. Jesus was born of a woman so that we might be adopted by his father. Jesus was held to the perfect standard of the law so that we could be purchased out from under the law, which was too heavy for us ever to lift. So as we keep seeking to understand this adoption, we move on to some parallels of adoption. Verse six, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So earthly adoption, the earthly adoption of the fatherless children in this world yields wonderful, but limited parallels to our own adoption in Christ. So first, like, uh, like earthly adoption of children, 
our heavenly adoption came from difficult and uh, often dangerous situations. The stories we know from our own boys and the stories we've heard from you and your adoptions remind us that the need for adoption springs from the brokenness of this world and the brokenness of families and the brokenness of sin and the brokenness of tragedy and suffering. But it isn't just like, uh, isn't it just like God to turn what the broken world means for evil or for suffering and turn it into good for us, for our families and for his glory? Isn't it just like God to, to not shy away from entering that dangerous world to rescue us out of it, to, to come near to the brokenhearted and to whisper how much he loves us and then show it by giving up his own life? Second, uh, like earthly adoptions, our heavenly adoption came about by very costly means. As any family who's adopted uh, knows, and they will tell you, even if, even if the cost wasn't pushing twenty or $30,000 in total, which some, some of yours did, uh, the cost of time and energy and focus and paperwork and emotional investment and even heartbreak at times, they're all high. Thank God that when he adopts sinners into his family by grace, through faith, he is the one who redeems, putting on the, putting, putting, putting on the full payment on his own son for us. Becoming a son of man, God's son, becoming man's son, so that sons of men can become sons of God. Sacrificing his closeness to God, Jesus came to comfort us to be tempted in every way, just as we are, but to remain without sin for us and to pay the ultimate price, his own life for us. A price Jesus surprisingly joyfully paid to give us hope. Like adopted children and adopting parents for that matter, we ought to look at our new father in heaven and our new family of faith and say, wow, this shouldn't be, but it is. And I'm thankful and I love it. Next, like earthly adoptions of children, we as believers are loved by choice, not just by nature. And the bond of, of love of a, of a biologically birthed child is unlike any other forged both genetically and, and through the miracle of creation of God. And so too is unique, the bond of love that says, I have no fundamental obligation to make this work, but for your sake, Adopt your child for our joy, our family. We will, by God's grace. Isn't this how God approaches us? We're undeserved. He, he, he lavishes his love on us anyway. Or as the, the Jesus story Bible that we're using for our own family advent reminds us, God does not love us because we are lovely. We are lovely because God loves us like the earthly adoption of children. Finally, we are pursued and chosen and legally locked into a unique and permanent relationship with him. Even in an earthly sense, the legal transaction that takes place ought to be permanent and, and points us to God's legal and relational commitment to keep us his forever family. When Joe and I adopted, uh, we didn't adopt every child in Africa who needed a mom and a dad. 
We pursued and chose and legally locked in these boys to this unique and permanent relationship with us personally. God does that for us. He does that individually for us. He pursues us. And friends, he does not pursue everyone in the same way. And we ought to fall on our knees and praise God for it and thank him for it. God has done that for us in adoption. That that comes our next point, uh, a host of privileges we find in adoption, the privileges of adoption. Let's look back at verses one through three now. I, I mean, Paul says that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And if we keep reading Galatians 4, uh, verse 8, after, after uh, the section we already read, formally it says, When you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. So the Galatians coming out of paganism, right? But now that you have come to God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? So the context of this passage in this chapter, in this book, makes it very clear that the Galatians came out of a pagan background. Uh, and then they heard of the life-giving, sin-forgiving, adoption-granting, life-transforming gospel uh, from Paul the Apostle and from other believers. But that later, Judaizers, folks who teach that every Christian must, on top of this new covenant in Jesus, keep every single law of the old covenant as well in order to be justified, forgiven, or made right before God, including these days and months and seasons and years they're forcing them to, to, to honor and celebrate. But Paul's saying here that if they run back to the old covenant for their ultimate hope, they will come up empty. For the old covenant was a temporary guardian meant by God to prepare his people for Jesus and for the full adoption of sons and heirs in him. So, so to go back to the calendars and the festivals and even the sacrifices and all the even man-made rules on top of that for a restored relationship was to ignore the fully restored relationship that already existed, that they already had. Paul says here, if you go back to the old system of Judaism, you might as well go all the way back to your old system of pagan, even demonic worship he talks about. Paul himself has been saved. The old covenant that he studied his whole life has been fulfilled by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and his resurrecting life afterwards. And now we Christians live out that very identity adopted heirs. And with us, with this identity comes endless privilege. I know privilege has fallen on hard times these days and become a bad word in some circles, but Christian privilege as it relates to God and his people is real. It is right. And it is to be indulged in. So just a few of those privileges I wanted to lay out for us this evening. First, there are vertical privileges. We have, we have the privilege of knowing that God is not our slave master, demanding begrudged and broken back loveless labor from us, but instead beckons us with tender love, worthy wisdom and gracious guidance to, to what is good, what is beautiful, what is true, what is enjoyable for us to walk in. God is not our typical never satisfied dad who's generally kind, but, but super critical and never freely and joyfully 
for you. Rather, God rejoices over us with gladness. He quiets us in his love. He delights in us with singing, the prophets tell us. God's not our typical ticking time bomb dad either. Just waiting to blow up on you and you mess up. Rather, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love for you. God's not your typical emotionally distant dad. Rather, Jesus, who knows a thing or two about God's fatherliness, tells the story of the prodigal son for us. And, and like the prodigal son's dad, when he sees his, his, his wayward son, us, a long way off because he's been watching for us and he sees us returning to him. He runs to us in love. God is also not your typical Disneyland dad, too tired or or time crunched to, to correct you in love. Rather, we know that God corrects and disciplines those he loves for their good and for his glory. It's an act of love from God to correct us and shape us more into his image. This leads to these vertical privileges lead to some horizontal privileges. We, we ought to live out the, the everyday privilege of being a member of God's pre-heavenly household. Uh, more than any other title, the apostles throughout the New Testament refer to the church as a family, brothers and sisters in the Lord. And God, through these biblical authors, is sending us this clear message, loud and clear, that that. I'm making a family here. So when you are at church, when you're in gospel community, even when you're on Zoom, coming to Zoom and going out of your way to be together, connected, even if online, I want you to soak it in that we are together. I want you when we're in each other's presence to look at each other in the eyes, take your time, feel one another's pain that you know about. Get to know pain if you don't know about it. Rejoice in successes. Get to know those successes if you don't know them. Pray for their struggles. Praise God in their victories. Because if you don't, who will? If their forever family won't feel and live out this bond and worship and community and mission together, then who will? It's not an understatement to say that the bond of believers ought to be stronger because it will last longer than any biological or even earthly adoption bond. Friends, we are each other's forever family. Let's keep growing in that realization and let's let it shape how we pray and how well we come around one another on the day to day. Christianity is not a competition. It is a collaboration. And, and so any hint of up one upmanship in ministry or in gospel community can poison the well. We, we, we must humbly yield to one another, bear with one another, communicate lovingly with one another, confront in love one another, confess sin to one another, forgive one another cheer on one another, prop up one another, and pray for one another. Ask one another more regularly, what feels healthy in your life with you and the Lord? What feels broken? How can I help? How can I pray? Christ Church, you're, you're really good at living out this familial call and reality. So let's keep growing in it week by week. Let's keep being all the more eager to grow as a family. And if we live in the greatest family, which we do, as messed up as it is sometimes, God's family, if we share in these rich privileges of sharing life, purpose, calling, crying, and mission, then let's get all the more better and serious even about inviting other people into our family, welcoming them when they come in, 
Do you know who has been, at least in my experience, the most all in for adopting more children? About including others in this beautiful picture of the gospel called adoption in this world? In my experience, it's always those who have been adopted. So as Christians, adoption is so built into our spiritual DNA that as a group, we ought to be a very adoptive bunch, which, praise God, we are. And as an adopted group into God's kingdom, every one of us ought to be all in and all the more eager to invite sinners who don't know Jesus' adopting love into this family of grace and truth and salvation. Are you eager to introduce people to their adopted dad? We ought to want others to experience the privileges of adoption. And lastly, we ought to live out and want them to experience the power of adoption. I think one of the most powerful effects of God's adoption of us is touched on in Galatians 3, 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, now is Paul teaching here that, that all of our differences ethnically, economically, even sexually gender are, are, are from now on void and null and that, and matter not. No, of course, of course not. What he is saying is that all the categories, real and legitimate and helpful in describing us as they may be, every experience, ethnic distinction, every cultural formative uh, uh, thing we've experienced is of some value in defining who we are, but it's a lie. It's a lie to say that these ultimately define us as Christians in a primary way. We are first, foremost, and forever children of God and family members with one another from the same root and into the same family. The apostles addressing Christians strike this common chord to which congregations throughout history ought to respond naturally and joyfully in ethnic and cultural harmony to Jesus says through Matthew, We are to shine our light of belief and love before others so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. Paul urges the Ephesians as as they join the family of God to be imitators of God as beloved children. The Philippians live blameless, innocent lives, Paul said, as what? As children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom we ought to shine as lights of love and truth in the world. And then John says, believers, we ought ought to be recognized as what? As children of God by doing what is right and by loving one another. These are the chords, the beautiful chords of truth being struck by the Holy Spirit's power, calling us to sing out in melody and in harmony across ethnic and economic and cultural differences to show the world we are one. The question is, are we willing? Are we willing to identify across those worldly boundaries to shine the light of truth on the reality of our true identity, our true community, our true family? The world is waiting. The world is watching. The world is wondering if anyone has the power to truly unite people across these lines. And we have the truth. We have the way. We have the life. We have Jesus. 
this year has taught us anything, it is that our hope cannot be in earthly solutions, in man-made solutions. A, a virus has upended every health system and economy on the planet. And if a million more people don't die of this virus by the time this pandemic is over, then several million may die of poverty and starvation from the economic fallout in second and third world countries especially. And an election has, has proven again that, that the systems of men are at best restrictive of fallen leaders, bad ideas, and at worst instruments in their hands for further corruption and contempt for those they lead. So are you looking for hope this year? It's not going to come, like Nathan was saying, it's not going to come just because the zero after the two rolls over on January 1st at midnight to one. It doesn't instill hope automatically. In fact, I don't know about you, but oftentimes that next day I'm just like, oh man, we're still here and it's still hard. Hope will come when each of us prayerfully and quietly and more consistently realize and live out our adoption as sons and daughters. And together we do this as one big, broken, busted, but being sanctified and built up and one day glorified with him family. So as we wrap up here, uh, I remember a little story from when we adopted Ivan. Someone involved in the process stopped uh, me once and, and asked curiously, because uh, there were some, some questions culturally about adoption, like, will Ivan be your heir? He asked, and I said, um, he said, will, you, will, will Ivan receive your inheritance? To which, you know, holding back tears as I felt the weight of this question, I, I replied clearly and, and, and with deep conviction, if he's good enough, Actually, no, I said, yes, I said, this is a, this is a permanent adoption and he really is my son and he will be my heir and he'll be inherited. But really, but, but, but let's be honest. I mean, it, that was a silly joke. I told it to Ivan the other day and he laughed. Hopefully someone's out there laughing. I know Britt Sanchez is laughing. She loves it when I plan jokes, <laughs> but real talk, real talk. It, it's, it's not a given that any child will grow up to be an heir and share in their parents' inheritance. Uh, assuming there's anything beyond the name, which is enough, it's enough, boys, it's enough, to inherit anyway. I've seen, and I know many of you have seen up close, both biological relationships and adopted relationships lose their inheritance over the brokenness of sin and brokenness of relationship. Strife. It's sin of the child, sin of the parent. It's heartbreaking, but it happens. And so the right answer to the question, you know, when the guy asked me, I, I was being sentimental, I was being emotional. I said, yes, but, and, and that, of course, we fully intend for those relationships to stay that way. But from a human earthly parenting perspective, even, even though I was joking then, the phrase, if they're good enough, is actually true. And even more than that, if, if not only they're good enough, but if I'm good enough, right? If the relationship is still good enough, when the time comes, they will be my heir, or they will take on my inheritance. They will take. The point of it is this, and this actually got us as a family to the gospel when we were looking at Galatians 4 earlier this week. It got us quicker to the gospel because as broken as families in this world are, and as broken as inheritances and heirs, and, 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 and taking on the name forward and taking on the resources of the family forward gets, the bottom line is we get the inheritance of God not by being good enough. We get the inheritance of God 
because Jesus was good enough and because he earned the father's inheritance. He earned the promise given. He earned the position in the father's family for us. He earned God's forever favor. He paid for our forever forgiveness and he transferred it all to us through adoption. So let me ask you, if you're here with us on this service right now, have you been adopted? Have you entered into God's family by grace? If not, if you don't know, if you don't know, if you're not, if you're in God's family or not, you, you should know. And the Bible says you can know if you'll turn and trust in Jesus. Don't let this holiday season pass by without settling things with the Lord by turning to him out of repentance and faith. God will call you, hear the call of your Savior, respond to him, please. He will adopt you in love and we can help you walk through that. Just email us at pastors at ChristChurchABQ.com. We'd love to set up a time to chat, FaceTime or whatever we need to do to pray for you, to answer any questions you have about the gospel. Uh, maybe you can tell us your story and we want uh, to see God adopt you into his story. In Christ Church, let's keep finding our deepest and richest hope for now and forever in the promise of adoption, in the, in the pinnacle of our salvation, which is adoption, in the parallels we see walking around in our homes and in our church through earthly adoption, in all those sweet privileges of being in the family of adoption, and in this power of uniting adoption that we experience. Let's pray now together in Christ Church. Lord, we are thankful, thankful that you are so, so good and that your love for us is so rich. Thank you for choosing us and calling us, converting us, waking us up to new life, adopting us into your family, sanctifying us as your children in love. And thank you for your commitment to keep us and even glorify us with yourself in your presence forever. Please, Lord, help us live out our adoptions toward you and toward each other and toward the world around us. Lord, help us to hold out a word of truth and a word of hope and a word of grace for anyone who might come to join us in this journey toward you, this journey with you. We pray in Jesus' name. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www dot Christchurchabq.com